0: Alright, so tonight we're going to be speaking about, not Jordan Peterson per se, I will be speaking about Jordan Peterson some. I will be not speaking about uh, some of the things that have made him very controversial. Um, I'm going to be talking mostly about his ideas that result in the 12 rules for life, an antidote to chaos, his best-selling book um, tonight. So, I'm going to explain a bit about who he is. And then, uh, for those, uh, oh, I'll give you an outline first. Uh, and then I'm going to show you a video of uh, just a moment, just a moment, just because people want to hear his voice, see his face. They don't know who he is. So, many people are unfamiliar to him, uh, to you, well, to him, and to you. So, you don't know each other. I'm going to give an introduction to who. Uh, Jordan Peterson is and the context in which this book comes out, uh, kind of fundamental beliefs or foundational beliefs of what reality is made up of, uh, what he calls drama, how that drama is (coughs) unfolded, and then the fruits of his thoughts, which is really the 12 rules for life. I won't be going through all of them, just kind of giving you little tidbits because we're going to have quite a bit in here. And then I'm going to have some concluding reflections about um, how we might hear him well and what we might disagree with him about. Uh, And then uh, reflections for Christians on how we might think about Jordan Peterson as well. Uh, And then we'll have discussion. So Jordan Peterson is a clinical psychologist, so he meets people. And he's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, I've heard, that he uh, is the only professor who's practicing uh, psychology. Not only a professor, but also a, pra- a practitioner. Uh, he, I should also say that I'm not an expert in Jordan Peterson. He has hundreds and hundreds of hours of video. I have not seen them all. Uh, if you type in his name on YouTube, it usually says Jordan Peterson goes beast on some feminist or somebody. <laughs> Uh, You'll just have to see that for yourself. But he's become notorious, uh, either valorized or vilified, depending on your view, uh, for his outspoken views on the inclusion of transgender pronouns. Uh, Peterson at the University of Toronto refused, in principle, to use these pronouns even if the student requested them. He has argued that the government should never legislate the speech we should use. Uh, this is also a current issue that's happening in California and the U.S., where the Supreme Court has just ruled in favor of a pro-life clinic uh, to say, even though the California law is wanting to make things equal, where they needed to hand out pamphlets of reproductive rights, and uh, Anthony Kennedy, uh, the the justice, who's just about to step down, has said that the constitution cannot be forced, uh, cannot be used to force people to believe something um, or to make statements against their beliefs. Well, uh, Jordan Peterson is saying the exact same thing against the charter rights uh, at a time when, um, <clears throat> when this, if I have this right, this trans, trans, well, actually, more accurately, that the Ontario Human Rights Code. Uh, and charter rights is interpreted as being able to um, self identify and be able to use these pronouns. Uh, and Jordan Peterson says that he should not have to be required that he can speak and call a person he or she, however he want, deems the person uh, he sees. So he says, when freedom of conscience, and when he doesn't literally say this, this is paraphrasing his ideas. When freedom of conscience and freedom of speech are under attack, as he says they are in this area, it has the makings of totalitarianism. There's a side note. Uh, This is something particularly scary for Peterson, the idea of totalitarianism, who reads extensively about ideology. He loves Russian and German literature. Uh, He really is interested in Marxism in its various forms. He even had a short stint in the NDP and then disavowed it. Uh, Throughout his house and even in his bathroom, he hangs huge propaganda posters from the USSR in order to remind himself that totalitarian ideologies are ever ready to be taken up by humanity. He's terrified of totalitarianism. Well, his stance, uh, and he's saying that uh, the government trying to legislate certain kinds of speech are the seeds of totalitarianism. And that's why he's standing up to speak against it. Uh, he was asked once, aren't you afraid of the violence at your riots? He said, I'm more afraid of being, um, the violence that would happen if I were silent. So you can see his fear. This has caused him to be hated particularly by the LGBTQ community. And many protest his events, events sometimes violently. People have been found to carry clubs the rocks through the windows, shout them down. He has said that universities are places where students are being instilled and inculcated with Marxist ideologies, and this is stifling true education. Uh, This was surprisingly revealed in one case uh, with uh, a a young lady named Lindsay Shepard at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario, showed one of Peterson's YouTube videos in the classroom where he was discussing gender pronouns, the debate around gender pronouns. And then she was consequently called into the administration uh, for making the classroom an unsafe space. That is where marginalized persons would feel harmed by, by, by what they heard, okay, by disagreement. Uh, the administrator said that her showing the video was like bringing Hitler into the classroom. Okay. When Shepard asked who had made the complaint, she um Since she hadn't seen no evidence of it, the advisor said that he could not reveal it. She had secretly recorded this meeting in the administration and sent it promptly to a news channel, which instantly became a national story and a huge boost to what Peterson was saying. Wilfrid Laurier did an independent study as a result into her complaint and found that no one from the classroom had complained. Instead, it was someone from the Rainbow Coalition that had heard about the video being shown and reported it, and reported her. Lindsey Shepard and Jordan Peterson are currently suing the university for defamation. I think she's suing for $3.8 million. He's suing for $1.5 million. He doesn't think that he's going to win the case per se, but he said he wanted to uh, make sure that they were more circumspect in their speech next time. Okay, uh, yeah, so why don't you, yes?
1: To interrupt, so he wants them to be more circumspect in this? He
0: does. He wants, uh, he wants the administration to, uh, to um, yeah, be circumspect. I'll just leave it at that, that. So can you go to the YouTube video? And I'll just we're just going to play a portion of it. I'm not going to show the whole clip. It's an interview that he did in 2016. I heard about Peterson in 2016. Uh, And CBC um, represents all things Toronto, I think. Is that right, Esther? Um, (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, And you'll just get a taste of the emerging conflict. And this is before it became very... Well, it became really big on University of Toronto, but now he's becoming national.
2: International.
0: International. Uh, thing okay, so let's just play it and you get a clip well, of some it is of them. a
3: controversial topic on a Toronto University campus this month. Some people on the campus saying pronouns like he, she, him, or her do not represent them accurately. Now, the university wants
0: okay, uh, maybe just refresh it. Sometimes it's a uh,
2: plate in my head. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I thought that would give us better reception.
2: Yeah, me
4: too.
3: (laughs) Well, it is a controversial topic on a Toronto University campus this month. Some people on the campus saying pronouns like he, she, him, or her do not represent them accurately. Now, the university wants staff to use alternate pronouns, but Jordan Peterson is a psychology professor at the university, and he is refusing to do that. Take a look at this.
5: The reason I'm defending freedom of speech is
3: because that's how people who their opinions settle their opinions in a civil society. <laughs> Peterson, do you have any comments on the Nazi presence at your protest? The presence of Nazis and white supremacists assaulting people at your protest. Do you have any comment
6: on that? Yeah, I don't like
5: Nazis. I'm speaking out the way I'm speaking out because I think this is a route to no violence, and violence is lurking. And you can say that that sounds like a threat. There was no
7: violence at our protest, though. Just I just asked, would you refer to me if it wasn't for this law? And I asked you to refer to me with a Would you? And your answer was no. No, if I'm repelled.
3: So just an example of how things uh, have become heated at the University of Toronto. That scene showing different groups of students, some confronting the professor about his position, others supporting him. Now, Peterson says this is about free speech, but A.W. Peet is also a professor at the University of Toronto who says that Peterson's language is abusive. Joining us right now is Professor Jordan Peterson, as well as Professor A.W. Peet. Thank you for joining us today. (coughs) Thanks, Uh, Professor Peterson, let's begin with you. Uh, Why are you against the use of alternate pronouns?
5: I'm I'm against the use of of legislation to determine what words are that myself and other people are required to utter. But would you use alternate pronouns if a student asked you to? I think I've
3: made my position on that clear already. Well, perhaps (laughs) not to our audience at home who are just being introduced
5: to this. Would you use alternate pronouns? And why not? (laughs) I, because I don't believe that other people have the right to determine what language I use, especially when it's backed by punitive legislation. And when the words that are being required are the constructions, there are artificial constructions of people I regard as radical ideologues whose viewpoint I do not share. Well, I, we have a graphic to show our audience at home, uh, just
3: some of the pronouns being used or asked to be used as alternates. Among them, you see here uh, Z or Zim, uh, Z or here. Z or zier, also hey, uh, or a rather, and per. So just some of the alternate pronouns there. Uh, Professor Pete, when you hear Professor Peterson saying that this is oppressive, how do you respond to that?
8: Um, well, uh, the Peterson drama has done real harm to real people on campus. He's made it harder to be transgender or non-binary. Um, I know this from personal experience, I'm non-binary and transgender, and I know how it's felt to be on the U of T campus for the last month, and I also know from uh, private communications with other affected people. Um, You know, in New Zealand where I grew up, uh, academics have a statutory role enshrined in the Education Act to be a critic and conscience of society, so I think that's an idea worth exporting to Canada, so I'd like to give Peterson about a B plus for his critic role recently, and an F for the conscience part. Um, A student uh, once said to me when I finally obtained tenure, now, professor, that that now that you have obtained superpowers, you must agree to use them for good, for peace and justice. So I invite uh, Peterson to start doing more of that.
3: Well, Professor Peterson, those who are asking for this u- alternate use of, pro- use of rather of alternate pronouns, they are saying it boils
5: down to respecting their human rights. How do you respond to that? I don't think it boils down to respecting their human rights. I think that it's an imposition on freedom of speech that's being implemented at a legislative level. I also think that if there was a naturally um, evolving uh, solution to the linguistic problem that's being posed by a small fraction of the transgender community, that people would have already adopted it. We've never had a situation with in, with in, in, in the usage of English before that required legislation to produce a transformation in the manner in which people spoke. It's a very dangerous precedent, so it's one thing to tell people what they can't say. So, for example, we have legislation um, making it illegal to do such things as deny the Holocaust. It's a completely different thing to demand that people use certain words when they're formulating their own ideas. And, I mean, it's also absurd. I mean, here's one thing that's happened that I don't believe the formulators of this legislation ever foresaw. So, in New York City, for example, there are now 31 protected gender identities. And I see no reason whatsoever why each of those gender identities can't demand the use of their own pronoun. uh, Absurd things like that have been happening on the University of Michigan campus, for example, where students have been given permission to tell faculty members and others what pronouns they are to be addressed by. they're multiplying rapidly out of control, so the law is bad from an ethical perspective. It's sloppily written, and besides that, the solution that it imposes is practically untenable. Well, I, sorry. Okay, me, so we can just a, stop, I I stop want to it there. Professor because we
3: did show. It gives you enough sense
0: all. of his the timbre of his voice, his Alberta accent. Uh, it gives you uh, a sense of how he is at the um, protests and at the riots or however we might want to call those, and then how he is in uh, a public interview, but he's been now interviewed by Joe Rogan, uh, Jim uh, Jeffries, multiple news channels, um, uh, the guy that used to date Katy Perry, (laughs) (laughs) all kinds of people. So it's in this environment, Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life, which is his second book, came out and has become a national bestseller. Uh, In some ways, it's even, I know it's a bestseller in England as well. I don't know elsewhere, though people are quite careful on where they read it. (laughs) Uh, This nice big black and white book with gold (laughs) letters for 12 Rules for Life. Uh, how many po- people have actually read the book? Okay, a couple people. Uh, this book was not instigated by the current events. However, uh, he was asked to write a book because of his popularity as a professor of psychology uh, from his online videos. His online videos were getting many, many hundreds of thousands of views because he's an engaging speaker. And uh, many of what he has said in his videos are rehashed in this book in various ways. Now, his popularity is highest among Christians and conservatives and alt-right. He disavows alt-right. Some people say he doesn't, but he disavows the alt-right, and he speaks in some ways of how he's actually left-leaning in terms of public education, in terms of government relationships to institutions. Uh, But why is he so popular among uh, these groups? I think that there's three primary reasons, Uh, one, his push against Marxist ideology, two, his frequent use and psychological interpretation of the Bible, he uses the Bible a lot, and three, his emphasis on personal responsibility, he really wants to emphasize (laughs) personal personal responsibility rather than blaming other people for your problems. However, should Christians be ready to jump on the Peterson bandwagon? Why? What is Jordan Peterson actually about? What undergirds his thoughts? One former student who is sensitive and affirming to the trans activist movement said that protests against Peterson have not quelled his popularity because the trans activist community has not adequately, adequately dealt with Peterson's own views and with what makes him so resonant with so many. So it seems that everyone is excited about Peterson, but very few understand where he's coming from. Uh, this talk is to understand his view of the world better in order to have a more informed discussion about Jordan Peterson and his views and about the issues he's been bringing up in public. This talk is not about his uh, confrontation with trans activism. Okay. It may come into, that, into the discussion, but that is not my intent. I'm trying to bore you through controversy. That's how I try to move (laughs) through all controversies. Okay, so let's get into his foundation, what he believes are the two fundamental realities. It is order and chaos. Those are the two fundamental realities. Peterson says that the scientific world can be reduced to molecules, atoms, quarks, However, uh, let's. No time to write there, Irene.
4: Sorry.
0: <laughs> uh, he says the world of experience has primal. This is not up here, but that the world of experience has primal constituents. These are the necessary elements who who interactions define drama and fiction. One is chaos; the others order. Basically, what he is saying is that if you look at the world scientifically, you're looking at atoms and molecules and how they all form. He said, but there's another reality, a reality of experience. There's a primal reality that is not something that you can do empirically. And he said, there's two primal realities of experience, order and chaos. And these are just as real. In fact, he would say these are more real. Um, He says that they have personality. So chaos and order, quoting uh, 12 rules, Chaos and order are fundamental elements because every lived situation, even every conceivable lived situation, is made up of both. The fundamental reality of chaos and order is true for everything alive, not only for us. So chaos and order is even found, you know, chaos theory with fractals and whatnot. You have chaos and order in all things. It's a primal element. Uh, Uh, and he says that these are inter- internally just juxtapose. Now, when he talks about uh, chaos and order, he says that they're not dead things like facts or molecules. Those are dead things. Order and chaos are the enlivening principle to all of life. Uh, and he says that these, um, from a Darwinian perspective, nature is what selects. So he's, saying, so he's giving a personhood to nature. He's given a personality. He's calling order and chaos personalities that can function, that act, that almost have a predetermined mentality and that they are perceived through our experience. So there are personalities that we perceive through experience. And so when people talk about nature selecting, well, you're actually personifying nature. Uh, a strict evolutionary theory would say that, no, it's, it's impersonal, non-purposeful. It has, and even Peterson says, we don't know the full direction of everything. But ultimately, order and chaos are this living principles. And so sometimes we talk about the sun rising. Um, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, here we talk about nature selecting. And so... Uh, chaos and order are these fundamental elements. <clears throat> he says that these personalities, let's, uh, let's go backwards, the personalities we have evolved to perceive, so we're talking about order and chaos, have been around in predictable form and in typical hierarchical configurations forever for all intents purposes. So he's saying that there's not only personalities, order and chaos, but they're hierarchical. We are encoded with hierarchy. They have been male and female, for example, for a billion years. That's a long time. The division of life into twin sexes occurred before the evolution of multicellular animals. So he's saying that male and female are realities prior to human existence. Uh, So you can see a bit of where he would have problems with transactivism, if you see. And not only that, he says that order is masculine and chaos is feminine. Now, you may be offensive, offended by this, but I'm going to explain what he means. But before I get there, I'm going to have a, a classic feminist critique of this kind of idea before I get into a nuanced view of what he's saying. Feminism has critiqued the view of like a, a platonic view where reason is masculine and the material world is feminine, and so you have the classic arrangement of the scientist um, exploiting the earth and byproduct exploiting the female body. Uh, and so, feminism has critiqued the scientific experiment as being uh, biased toward masculinity. Uh, He even gets into uh, language of saying, order is God the Father, chaos is mother nature. You can almost think of God the Father instructing his order on a chaotic mother nature. You almost have this idea of a man exploiting. And sometimes people have made, rightfully in some ways, of many Christians who have been exploitive of women. Uh, And this is a feminist critique against this kind of dualism. But does it bear against Jordan Peterson? Not exactly. That's as close as I'm going to get. Not exactly. Um, So because this chaos and order are interchangeable and as well as eternally juxtaposed. So they are two dual realities, that are always in need of each other. So order, uh, let's go forward a couple, one more. Um, so you see that he th- he loves the Tao. That is his primary way of understanding reality is the Tao. Uh, and you see there's these two snake-like figures. Uh, the light is the order, or the masculine. The other one is the feminine, the chaos, and so they're juxtaposed and they're always interacting with one another. They're always trying to eat each other's tail, as it are is, as it. Order, uh, and so he says that this is the underlying reality that these two are interchangeable, eternally juxtaposed. We can go forward, <clears throat> order which is the known, is always symbolically masculine. Note, symbolically masculine. So he's talking about how stories are done. The kings are always male in a fairy tale, and the wicked stepmother is chaos. So he's saying there are these old principles that have long followed us. Order. Order. Is symbolically masculine. This is perhaps because the primary hierarchical structure of human society is masculine." He's saying that society has always been hierarchically masculine. Perhaps that's why mas- symbolically, when we write stories, the masculine is always hierarchical. Okay. He says that, positively, uh, uh, men create cities. He says it's because men throughout um, history built towns, worked as engineers, stonemasons, and operators of heavy machinery. So positively, the masculine symbol is seen as uh, ordering civilization. But the negative is that it can be oppressive, tyrannical. It can create concentration camps. So when he says order is hierarchical masculine, he's not saying it's all good. He's saying it can be either good or bad depending on how it relates to chaos. Chaos, the unknown, is symbolically feminine. This is because we are born of the unknown. We don't know where we come from, the mystery of life. Just as all beings encounter mothers when we're born. Chaos is the material, the mater. Uh, it is what matters. Okay. Positively, it is creativity. It is life force. And so, when when men, ma- the masculine—I shouldn't say men—when the masculine is making cities, it needs creativity. It needs life force. So it needs chaos. But the, but the dark side of chaos is darkness, disease, the overbearing protective mother uh, that leads one into immaturity. Or death. Okay. Therefore, they, the yin and the yang—I don't know which one's yin, which one's yang. I don't know if it matters, but maybe it does. They juxtapose and need one another. Uh, and so, so in this uh, hierarchical order, he says it's chaos within order, within chaos within higher order. The order that is most real is the order that is most unchanging. And that is not necessarily the order that is most easily seen. So he's saying that we see the order of reality, but the highest order that is unchanging, we don't quite know what it, is, what it looks like. But it is probably that nature which selects independence on chaos. Okay. What then are we to do? <clears throat> Next. Well, he says that there is, a, uh, there is a third element to reality, and that is consciousness. Consciousness. What is the role of consciousness? <clears throat> it is the moderator. It mediates between the two. I'm going to quote him. The third, as there are three, is the process that mediates between the two which appears identical to what modern people call consciousness. It is our eternal subjugation to the first two, chaos and order, that makes us doubt the validity of existence, and that makes us throw up our hands in despair and fail to care for ourselves properly. It is proper understanding of the third that allows us the only real way out. So consciousness is this troubled state that's trying to moderate between order and chaos. You remember I said order and chaos are primal realities that have personalities that we have access through experience. Well, we experience through consciousness. And consciousness is trying to moderate between these two fundamental realities. He says that is obvious. And we can... Shake our heads, yes, it's obvious that we have order and chaos in our lives. Um, And he says that consciousness, although it's a troubled state because we are self-aware, it offers a way out through the knowledge of the Tao. The Taoist juxtaposition of yin and yang doesn't simply portray chaos and order as the fundamental elements of being, it also tells you how to act. The way, the Taoist path of life is represented by or exists on the border between the two serpents. So you can see between the, the Tao is a path. The way is between the two realities. So basically he's saying that we can't seek only order and try to control everything. We destroy things. Nor can we give into chaos because that seeks self-destruction. Rather, we need to straddle the middle ground, recognizing and living in the tension of both. And that's where meaning lies. I don't know if I have a quote. Is it a quote? Okay. (laughs) I quote a lot, just so you know that I'm telling you the truth. But he says, To straddle that fundamental duality is to be balanced, to have one foot firmly planted in order and security, and the other in chaos, possibility, growth, and adventure. So chaos is not, not such a bad thing, after all, it's growth, it's adventure.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: By the way, he says that women uh, uh, also access the masculine, just as men access the feminine. So it's he's saying it's symbolic, though he does think that it does play into um, the structure of things, which we can get into later. <clears throat> Okay, so now that I've named these fundamental realities, we have the order and the chaos with consciousness as the moderator. Now I want to talk about the drama. Okay, drama is his word for the uh, for the evolution of experience, or or maybe even more precisely, the evolution of consciousness. Uh, So what he starts is with unconscious animals to where we are now. And you will see how chaos and order and consciousness all are at play here. It's a drama because it's decoded by us through story, through myth. Where a scientist may look to patterns and molecular structure in order to determine a beginning uh, and a pattern of how we've developed Peterson, as a psychologist deeply influenced by Carl Jung, looks to the development of consciousness. Where do we find that evidence of how we've evolved through experience through consciousness? We find it within our oldest and most religious stories, through dreams, through symbols. He gives lots of evidence in this, as does Carl Jung. So where do we begin this drama? Now remember, he's saying nature is a personality. Order and chaos has personality. And so in a sense, our experience is as if it's a drama. But never forget that, this is, that we are eternally subjected to order and chaos. So it's a drama symbolically. But in reality, we are just what we are. That's important to notice, especially as we come to the end as how we think about it as Christians. So we start as unconscious animals, or what he calls the naked ape
1: do we start as animals as unconscious animals being each of us as individuals or humankind as a species? Humankind
0: as a species thank you mm-hmm. um, yeah we are we have uh, so in that sense it is a drama where there's a cause and effect. Mm-hmm. there's a prior and then there's a now uh, So he really holds to we have evolved into uh, to multi multicellular animals. Apes, or chimpanzees being the closest relative. Uh, an ape was right before we became conscious. So apes are the unconscious animals. In the story found in Genesis, Peterson says Adam and Eve don't seem very conscious at the beginning when they are first placed in paradise. And they were certainly not self-conscious for the first time. So he's saying when we first encounter Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, They are not conscious, or they are not self-conscious, because, uh, he says, because they don't know that they're naked, okay? I'll speak further about that later. Um, Adam and Eve, uh, however developed as far as an animal morphology is concerned, is not Peterson's worry. He is not thinking like a scientist. He's thinking like a psychologist. Rather, he imagines that prior to conscious existence, humans existed as unconscious animals in their environment. As a result, they were without sin and without shame, because they're not aware. They're without sin and without shame. As a part of their environment, these animals were inheriting coding, such as hierarchical structures and of of sex, male and female, uh, which will be later revealed in social structures as we become more conscious. Uh, This can be seen in the Genesis account where God makes humanity male and female. Uh, Let's go back. So, human beings, however, become conscious. The serpent tempts Eve, telling her to eat of this particular fruit that will make her like God. Being human and wanting to know more, Eve decides to eat the fruit. Poof, she wakes up. She's conscious, or perhaps self-conscious for the first time. Then she, like women since her, make men (laughs) self-conscious. Peterson says. That's not my thought, but it is pretty funny. (laughs) So what is consciousness or self-consciousness? It means at some point in our evolutionary development, we became animals that were aware of ourselves, Uh, And our first significant discovery is that we were naked. Naked. (laughs) Naked is much better. (laughs)
4: Um,
0: Well, what is the significance of their being naked? It's because it means they're vulnerable. Exposure to pain, suffering to other people's judgment, and awareness of disease and death. This makes Adam and Eve aware of their unworthiness to stand before God, says Peterson. Uh, So, this means original sin is not a story about disobedience to a personal creator. Rather, it's a story about humans becoming aware that they are animals um, that are vulnerable to their weakness and to death. Uh, So... So then, this is them. Oops, go back. Back. And then God banishes the first man and the first woman from paradise out of infancy, out of the con- unconscious animal world into the horrors of history itself. Okay, so they're becoming conscious of history, the horror of history, the horrors of history. You can hear a ring of totalitarianism in there. He said, "So how's this tied to sin if it's not an act of disobedience It's because in our awareness of the of the fear of our vulnerability to disease, weakness, and death, we turn against others in order to be stronger and more likely to survive uh, we're afraid and we know exactly what makes you what makes you scared and what and what hurts you so now we're going to use it in order to survive and so that's where it becomes." Uh, an act uh, consciousness becomes not only the fear of our vulnerability but also it causes cruelty it adds (laughs) suffering upon suffering thanks Peterson he said it is the one who knows their own vulnerability that can imagine the rack the iron maiden and the thumbscrew the let's go back back uh (laughs) There's going to be a lot of backs on this tape. That's fine. Uh, So the first stage is unconscious animals. We become conscious of our vulnerability and cruelty. So where does religion and mythology come in? Now you can go forward. Quoting Peterson, which sounds a lot like Carl Jung, but much more accessible. Our ancestors worked out very sophisticated answers to such questions, but we still don't understand them very well. This is because they are in large part still implicit, manifest primarily in ritual and myth, and as of yet incompletely articulated. We act them out and represent them in stories, but we're not wise enough to formulate them explicitly. We're still chimps in a troop, or wolves in a pack. One day, however, not so long ago, we woke up. We were already doing, but we started noticing what we were doing. We started using our bodies as devices to represent their own actions. We started imitating and dramatizing. We invented ritual. We started acting out our own experiences. Then we started to tell stories. We coded our observations of our own drama in these stories. In this manner, the information that was first only embedded in our behavior became represented in our stories but we didn't and still don't understand all what this means. Uh, The biblical narrative of paradise and the fall is one such story, fabricated by our collective imagination, working over the centuries. It provides a profound account of the nature of being and points the way to a mode of conceptualization and action well matched to that nature. Let me explain what he has just said. He's saying that we have myths, or religious stories. Long time ago, when we became conscious, we started trying to figure out, "Oh, you hurt!" As, as we were almost discovering language, and we also started telling stories, maybe, um, you know, dancing like a, a beast, or something like this. That's how I dance, by the way. Uh, and, but slowly, as we became more and more aware and noticed what we were doing, we started coding them into stories to pass on, to explain what it means to exist and what it means on how we ought to exist. This became myth. This is uh, origins of humanity. This became religious stories. Uh, the biblical narrative, he says, of uh, the paradise in the fall is one such story fabricated by our collective imagination. And he says that it provides a profound account of the nature of being and points the way to a mode of conceptualization and action well-matched to our nature. So he's saying that it was representational because now we have consciousness that can imagine and, uh, and personalize things, but through that we also come to understand ourselves. So this is heavily influenced by Carl Jung, the 20th century Swiss psychiatrist where he says the collective unconscious creates narrative. Go to the next one. So to quote Carl Jung, The history of religion in its widest sense, including therefore mythology, folklore, and primitive psychology, is a treasure house of archetypal forms from which the doctor can draw helpful parallels And enlightening comparisons for the purpose of calming and clarifying a consciousness that is all at sea. Okay, now let me explain this quote. So, Peterson has been using the Bible as well as Egyptian myth, as well as fairy tales and also Disney movies uh, and Russian narratives. He loves and he's just saying, look, the symbols are rich, they're everywhere. There's a commonality, there's a consistency. Now, Some people, like Freud, wanted to get past religious inhibitions. But Jung said, no, 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 this is a coding of who we actually are. So we don't need to turn away from religious myths, even though we've evolved past them. We need to incorporate them to help people understand their own nature. So this is what Peterson is doing. In fact, he's trying to use uh, these myths and biblical narratives in order to help calm and clarify consciousness at sea. So, like Jung, Peterson finds so much to mind from the Bible. Um, we had an instance of his reading of Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, he said it was the realists who created uh, uh, the Old Testament God the one that was demanding, exact, and if you didn't follow the rules and you hurt yourself, well, that's what happens. That's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is presented as a different character. He's a more kindly Geppetto, master craftsman, and a benevolent father. He wants nothing but the best for us. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Or you have Christ's archetypal death, he says, exists as an example of how to accept finitude, betrayal, and tyranny heroically. How to walk with God despite the tragedy of self-conscious knowledge and not as a directive to victimize ourselves in the service of others. So what he's saying, he's taking Christ's sacrificial death as not saying make yourself a welcome mat for other people. Otherwise, that means that Jesus was welcoming Satan on in. Rather, he was standing he recognized his own finitude because Christ is every person, uh, recognized betrayal and tyranny that happens to all of us and bore it heroically. That is what it is to walk with God. Not God as the God of the Bible in the way that a Christian would understand it, but uh, God in the sense of how the myths point to this type of person, this type of personality. okay the next stage so we we had the consciousness and then we started creating stories about this place of suffering and then christianity undercut itself and made way for science Uh, christianity is the religion and the bible uh, is the religion and uh, the bible is the book that peterson is most familiar with and although he does not believe in a personal God, he speaks highly of the miracle of Christianity in that it created the dignity of each human person because it is not obvious in nature that everyone is equal or has dignity. Um, and through this created a less barbaric society. And secondly, uh, the importance of the future uh, that Christianity enabled us to understand the importance of the future and therefore able to sacrifice the expedient for the sake of the future. He's saying that um, even though the immediate seems more pressing. So Christianity revolutionized consciousness, he said. And so it, it gave us the idea that everyone's dignified and that the future is important, even though these things are not empirically provable. However, Christianity had its problems. Carl Jung said that Christianity's focus on heaven failed to sufficiently deal with problems in the here and now. Then slowly, alchemists and then scientists began to focus on the transformation of matter. I don't know if I have a quote. As the Christian revolution progressed, however, the impossible problems uh, it has solved disappeared from view. That's what happens to problems as they are solved. And after the solution was implemented, even the fact that such problems had ever existed disappeared from view. So he's saying that uh, Christianity revolution solved many problems. And then once it solved the problems, people forgot Christianity's usefulness. Because it had already solved the problems. And in fact, we don't even realize that these problems were now solved. So he's saying, I'm looking to the Christian Bible, because you don't even know that these were problems that we deal with and have been dealt with by Christianity. But it has, we have grown out of it, just like an infant grows out of, uh, out of home, so do, so do we as a human species need to grow out of Christianity. Then, and only then, could the problems that remained less amenable to the quick solution of Christian doctrine come to occupy a central place in the consciousness of the West, come to motivate, for example, the development of science, aimed at resolving the corporeal, material suffering that was still all too painfully extant within successfully Christianized societies. So saying that Christian doctrine had room for the dignity of person and the future, but it didn't have any room for the suffering that we have now. Nietzsche, uh, another huge influence on him, Uh, uh, Peterson says that the first attack that Nietzsche has against Christianity is that Christianity undermined itself by its own high truth. It enabled to see beyond this world and therefore enabled people to see beyond what is expedient but in doing so, undermined itself with immediate problems. So, it, so as they were looking into the future, it undermined Christian and it gave them hope outside of the immediate problems. It said, oh, I can sacrifice for the future. And so when you're saving money or maybe sacrificing toil and sweat for the, for the future of your children, in the immediate, you don't recognize it unless it's revealed, like, oh, the future is important. Uh, He's saying that that's what it did, but then it forgot the immediate. It solved a problem, but then it left a gap. And that's what Nietzsche is saying. Or that's what Peterson is saying Nietzsche is saying. More importantly, says Peterson, is Nietzsche's second attack, attack, which is against the removal of the true moral burden of Christianity. This means that Christianity uh, is based on Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice. It removed the need for followers to carry any moral burden, Mm
4: -hmm.
0: says Nietzsche. The church had watered down the need to imitate Christ, since justification came not by effort, but by faith in God's grace alone. In this way, Christians fell into the status quo, and the church had become a servant of the state, according to Nietzsche, which he saw in the German Lutheran Church saying that they're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good.
9: Or today, in a lot of the Christians in the United States of America, in the way that they observe the current, Hmm. to me, it's astonishingly similar.
0: That's right, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, However, what... Christianity is, it, it, it focused, it focused the mind. Um, so Nietzsche saw that Christianity, for all its failures, focused the mind, allowed us to progress, but then focused us and gave us and saw that freedom had constraint. But now that we have the moral burden released, that, that um, these Christians, that Christianity, we've evolved past Christianity, uh, what has happened is that we say, oh, actually the moral burden... Is on us. God is dead, and we have killed him. Who will atone us from this blood, or who will wash our hands from this blood, since Christ is not there to atone? Nietzsche is saying culturally we have killed God. <clears throat> so quoting, uh, quoting Peterson, what has emerged, what has emerged from behind this corpse, however, and this is an issue of central importance, is something even more dead something that was never alive even in the past, nihilism, as well as an equally dangerous susceptibility to new, totalizing utopian ideas. So with the death of God, communism and fascism emerged. So he said, so Nietzsche said we need to get past the moral burden falls on us um, because we've grown past Christianity. It has offered it what it needed, but now we've grown out of it. And now the moral burden is on us. There is no ultimate truth. Values need to be created. Meaning needs to be shaped. Uh, Well, Peterson is saying, Nietzsche saw this in some ways, is that once truth was removed, something even more dead than Christianity is there. Total relativism or nihilism, nothingness, or totalitarianism. And he says that this is the battle that we are now in. That Nietzsche prophesied of where we would be as a society now. We are in a state where Christianity has died. God is dead. And now we are trying to um, go toward nihilism or totalitarianism. And these are the two temptations. Uh, Nihilism says that do what you want because nothing matters. Totalitarianism is said, let someone else make the decisions and tell us what to believe. However... uh, Peterson disagrees in saying that we don't have to fall into either one of these. Uh, can you go forward? I don't know what's next. So, should we fall to nihilism or totalitarianism? Neither. He said, what we need is the place of ideas, because ideas, he goes, facts are dead, but ideas are alive. And so ideas emerge out of the consciousness, that is, us confronting the chaos, the unknown. New ideas emerge, and we need to have the battle of ideas. So we need to have a, 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 basically a battle. So he doesn't see that happening in society, where you either agree or you're maligned. That's how he feels society. There's no real dialogue between ideas. So he said that that's one way to, forward. The other one is saying that we need to alleviate suffering in all that we can do. Uh, that is the only way forward, is to alleviate suffering. Uh, <clears throat> Do I have a quote there? Yes. Consider then that the alleviation of unnecessary pain and suffering is a good. Make that an axiom. To the best of my ability, I will act in a manner that leads to the alleviation of unnecessary pain and suffering. You have now placed at the pinnacle of your moral hierarchy a set of presuppositions and actions aimed at the betterment of being. So he's saying, we don't know what good is, but we know what's bad. Therefore, let's try to get rid of bad. That's his way forward. Uh, and, then, and then he speaks about, do I have another quote there? Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's another idea. And this is where you can really hear his personal responsibility. We're getting close to the end of his ideas. You could help direct the world on its careening trajectory... So careening trajectory, this is a drama that has no real direction, but it's going somewhere in this careening and we have to hold on for our life's sake. You could help to direct the world on its careening trajectory a bit more toward heaven and a bit more away from hell. Heaven is making the world a better place. Hell is adding suffering upon suffering. Once having understood hell, researched it, so to speak, particularly your own individual hell, you could decide against going there or creating that. You could aim elsewhere. You could, in fact, devote your life to this. That would give you meaning with a capital M. That would justify your miserable existence. That would atone for your sinful nature and replace your shame and self-consciousness with the natural pride and forthright confidence of someone who has learned once again to walk with God in the garden. Okay, so he's just used a lot of religious language. On a cursory reading, you're just like, yeah, it sounds kind of good. But then as you're you go deeper in his thought you know oh what is that so uh so he's saying that we need to make it toward order away from chaos uh personally and socially trying to alleviate that's meaning meaning is making a choice in the face of absurdity life is absurd make a choice because you have the freedom of choice to make a place the better uh, you know, even though that is an act of faith, that's an act of courage. To want to make it better for no other reason to, than to not make it worse is meaningful. That is the way forward. And not only that, this will atone. What will atone? Your choice to choose to be a better person, uh, to be a better person tomorrow than you are today. Okay. <clears throat> that's the end of his drama and the end of his thoughts. Uh, These are just, I'm just going to read his rules. I'm not gonna, I don't have time to go into his rules about what he says in each one. But uh, there it is. He used to have 40 rules and then he went down to 16 and then he finally settled on 12. I don't think there's any systematic order to this. Sometimes it's very deep. And philosophical and psychological and sometimes it's very new agey and shallow. Okay. Uh, so if you want to know more, you can stand up straight with your shoulders back. Rule number two, treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Rule number three, make friends with people who want the best for you. Rule number four, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not um, to who someone else is today. Not bad rules, Right. Uh, rule number five do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them okay Uh, number number six uh set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world okay now uh, rule number seven pursue what is meaningful not what is expedient uh rule number eight tell the truth or at least don't lie rule number uh nine Assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. Uh, Rule number 10, be precise in your speech. Rule number 11, do not bother children when they are skateboarding. (laughs) Basically, he's talking against bureaucracy there. He's saying let children be dangerous so that they can become competent rather than uh, fall under the nanny state. He's saying that uh, the government has become a nanny state and has not allowed people to become competent individuals in the world. Uh, And rule number 12, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street, which is a soft side. And actually, he's a softie at times. And the last chapter, really, he talks a lot about the suffering he dealt with constantly with his daughter, Michaela, and his son, Julian. And so he talks a lot about suffering. He thinks that the basic existence of life is suffering, and the basic meaning is trying to alleviate suffering. Take responsibility to alleviate your suffering and other suffering. Uh, and so, why pet a cat? He says he's a dog person, but he didn't want to alienate cat people. Uh, and, uh, and he thinks that cats are strange. He loves dogs. Um, I think he thinks cats are chaos and dogs are order, is my guess. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, but he says that when life is difficult... Notice. Begin to notice. Sometimes thinking will not help you. Just notice. Notice life around you. Notice the beauty around you. Okay. <clears throat> Concluding reflections. Okay, first, positive. <clears throat> uh, I like his challenge against uh, forms of ideological thinking uh whether one agrees with left thoughts uh that is not the point here is when left thought can become totalitarian so that you know he's also against alt-right totalitarianism he's against both but i think that he has exposed something that's been happening in the university marxism has been around a long time having a strong ideological sway on people. Marxism used to be a, a theory of economics, but now it's a theory of everything, uh, where um, where the minority is always needing to overthrow the majority, and the majority is always bad. So he's saying basically that's chaos, saying that it needs no order kind of thing. Uh, and I think that, okay, he's created an alternate voice. He's wanting to uh, become an idea. That's great. I wish that and he calls for the free exchange of ideas and i wish that his dream would come true with his thoughts and with people being able to respond but it seems that he often engages with people from the left in interviews and debates and you can find tons of them online Um, and then the third one is that he calls for personal responsibility against suffering i really like that Um, that if a guy doesn't know what he's about uh, he's an agnostic He thinks that the world is chaotic, yet somehow he holds on with an act of courage, an act of faith, of wanting to alleviate suffering, only because he doesn't want it to become worse. I think that's pretty noble, uh, that he's holding on to something that he believes is deep, but he doesn't know why. I think that's something that we can really applaud. Caution. Uh, Particularly, uh, well, just... He believes reality to be reductionistic and eternally dualistic. I have a problem with this. Can you uh, expound
2: on that a little bit?
0: The language I'm using? Yeah. Uh, well, eternal dualism is the easiest one to explain. That he, he thinks that there's only two ideas that are true, and it's the ideas that are there rather than a personal God who holds all ideas and holds all realities. Um, in, in Christ, all things cohere. So when you create a dualism, uh, it creates conflict as as a... Well, I'm explaining it right now. Okay, let me just keep going. (laughs) Uh, I'll keep going with my answer to you. Thank you for asking. Uh, Is that when you have an eternal dualism, that means reality is by nature conflictual. Shalom or peace is not the fundamental reality. It is a place of conflict. Uh, You strive for heaven out of this eternal domain of conflict. Well, that makes me curious about how long, how far you can go or how much you can accomplish. Uh, reductionistic, because he reduces meaning to consciousness, in turn, the self. And as soon as you reduce reality to something that is within God-created order, it creates dualisms, actually. Uh, if you create everything to materialism, to matter, it creates a, well, what are we to do with consciousness? So mind and cosmos are in conflict. And that's, what, that's the strong problem with the strict materialist, because they think, well, there is no such thing as free will. There is no such thing as the mind. Uh, and so there's a dualism, and they're trying to cohere it through the, um, the, the reductionism of material. Well, when you try to reduce everything to consciousness, it creates this dualism. Now, it could create this dualism between um, mind and cosmos again. And I think that he believes psychology is the full explanation that through psychology, we can understand all things. Uh, but when you reduce everything to consciousness, the dualism that comes out for him is order and chaos. And interestingly, order some falls more toward mind, and chaos falls more toward the material. Okay. So he does kind of fall within that mind-material dualism, but, uh, but, he try, but he works around it through psychological categories of order and chaos. <coughs> so I find that uh, when you reduce it to consciousness, what you end up doing is you're condemned in reality that does not welcome you. Francis Schaeffer said it would be like a, a fish swimming in the water instantly growing lungs and going, ugh, I'm supposed to be in the water, why do I have lungs? Well, we're, we're in, um, we are people of instinct. Why, why should we uh, be in this world where we're now conscious of our suffering, our vulnerability? Uh, it seems like a cruel trick by evolution or by nature. Uh, it's interesting. I wasn't going to read this quote, but he said, um, Perhaps man is something that we should never have been. Perhaps the world should even be cleansed of all human presence, so that being and consciousness could return to the innocent brutality of the animal. I believe that the person who claims never to have wished for such a thing has neither consulted his memory or confronted his darkest fantasies. Mm-hmm. The language of humanity is a virus or is a plague, but he's, but he's condemned he's not trying to kill people, but he's just like, we're condemned by knowing that we're aware. So it's reductionistic and, and it's a ghost in the machine. I find that I find his thoughts quite dark in that way. Uh, and quite difficult, um, and quite surprised that he has it. So that he stands against totalitarianism and and nihilism? Wow, what brave bravery, but in the midst of absurdity. However, I think that with his fears, Christianity has a response, and this is where I'll end. And I want to say, uh, well, see, Christianity is given a lot of ink in this book, but it rarely emerges as it truly is. Through the lens of psychology, Christianity and the Bible are reduced to human constructs that cannot have any more power than symbolize our current struggle. Let me say that again. Through the lens of psychology, Christianity and the Bible are reduced to human constructs that cannot have any power more than symbolize our current struggle. But I believe that Christianity has power it has power it has power that can give that peterson uh, should not abandon <clears throat> christianity has power because god is personal god is not merely a symbol and ultimately god is not male let me point out god is represented as father but ultimately he is neither male nor female for this reason we are not to image god through <clears throat> Uh, created things, we're not supposed to try to find God as male images or female images. He wasn't supposed to be imaged because he was not of this created order. He preeminently revealed himself as I am, who I am. He is without contingent personality. He is absolute within himself. Uh, so he's not to be confused with creation. And so, in this sense, he is not—he is not imprisoned. By our current situation. He's not imprisoned by our current struggle. He is able to freely act to us and toward us. Because Christianity also has power because it's historical, the Bible historical. When the Bible records God's interventions throughout history, it is speaking about God, the personal God, acting into history, guiding history. If it is not in history, our predicament is eternal. Yet sin and evil are not eternal. They are not the way things should be. Evil is an aberration of the good. Sin is disobedience to a personal God. They are not ultimate uh, sin and evil. One does not need to leap or have courage in order to know that creation and the one who upholds it are essentially good. It is told to us in scripture and it resonates with what we know to be true. Uh, he says that you have to take an act of faith to believe that fundamental reality is good. I don't think, I think everyone here believes reality is fundamentally good. And that's why we cheer for the hero. We don't want the anti hero, the tragedy. We want, we want accomplishment, and he seems to forget that myth. Why do we long for good if it's not our original way? But for it to be original, it must be historical, it has to be prior and it has to be continuous. Also, if God acts in history, and our actions occur in history, then our predicament may be be brought right in history, which Jesus has done by entering into history. Our historical moment is not an eternal one, eternal one in uh, in a condemning sense, but an eternally free one in a linear sense. Christianity has also power, not only because God is personal and because the Bible is historical, but because it speaks about the goodness of creation. Peterson is correct to say that many Christians have failed to grasp the goodness of creation, particularly through the gospel. But Jesus has not come to free us from this world, but to free us for this world. In Romans 8, it says that creation groans for the liberation of God's children. Jesus came into the flesh and rose again with a fleshy or fleshly body. Creation was not only declared good in the beginning, but reaffirmed as good in Christ's resurrection. Therefore, when we pursue Christ, we are not negating this world, but seeking the care of creation and culture for his glory. So we need to be heavenly minded in order to be earthly good. In this way, uh, Peterson also captures something uh, particularly important about Christ's sacrifice. It's not a denunciation of this present world, which is interesting that that's not what Peterson sees it as. That's what most people see it as. Rather, he sees it, he interprets it as a denunciation of the self, capital S self, over God's world. It is a denunciation of sin and tyranny. And over destructive qualities of life on earth It is a denunciation of expediency So that God's kingdom may be established by God's purposes But this is not merely symbolic, but real And Christianity has power to promote personal moral responsibility Um, Some have mistaken the gospel as a freedom to sin That's how I used to interpret it That's how I ended up at (laughs)
4: Libri
0: not because I thought it was a place of sin, but it was because I was trying to get out of it. Uh, Paul himself speaks against this. Does Christ, um, should we sin more so that Christ, grace may abound? Certainly not. So, Peter seems, seems to be very selective in what he reads. Paul talks about the struggle with the sinful nature, but not as something ultimate, because we will be given, uh, the mortal will be swallowed by the immortal not as symbol, but as reality. And so we are not saved in order that we um, might sin. We are saved in order to be free from that sin. Yes, we do not do good works in order to achieve godlikeness or to achieve God's favor. Rather, we do good works out of a result of thanksgiving. thanksgiving. Sorry, that was my Tennessee <laughs> accent. Rather, we do good works out of a result of thanksgiving for what God has already done and is doing. It is for this he saved us. So, my thoughts about Peterson, my final little refrain before we have conversation, is that I think that there's something to resonate with, with Peterson, but I also want to caution people. And I've cautioned people from early on. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you know why he thinks what he thinks? And no one has been able to answer. Though he's resonated with lots of people, which is good. I think of Peterson as a possible co-belligerent co-belligerent means that someone you don't have to agree with but you agree with some of the ends and how those ends are achieved may be done differently um julia worked in the downtown east side uh some of the nurses were buddhist and uh and they would expend themselves to help people who are homeless who were diseased and i was just like wow like is it the same thing that Julia is doing out of the gospel and what they're doing out of the Buddhist principles? And I had to think about that a long time. And I realized that it's, it's, a, it's people who are coming from different beginnings, a different source, and they cross paths toward a similar goal, but they have different ends. And so how they practice may be somewhat similar and it may be somewhat different. And there's moments where you make those choices. Well, I think Peterson is a co-belligerent. Uh, And one must be careful on how we associate with co belligerents. Okay, Okay, that's the end. Uh, Thank you. Uh, So, uh, you can see that I travel narrowly through hot topics, but we can bring them up if you like, but there's a lot to discuss. Um, And uh, I didn't discuss his first book, The Maps of Meaning, which is where he gives an academic uh, account of why he believes what he believes or how he understands mythology and epistemology. And both books, he said, um, came out of his sphere of totalitarianism. Okay, Okay. any thoughts,
2: points of interest? I wish I'd taken notes. (laughs) It's recorded. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it? Okay, good. Mm-hmm. And is it recorded, accessible as a podcast through the website?
0: Yeah, if we can find someone who can set up a podcast.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> you got to take
0: personal responsibility from alleviating suffering from yourself <laughs> and for others.
9: Go for it. <laughs>
7: Like a, just like many different kind of social types of social constructionism, where like why why should he pick suffering, or like why does he get to say total totalism? Wow, totalitarianism it's a hard word to say. Totalitarianism is bad. Yeah. Like because he doesn't have that ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I, that's where it starts to fall apart a little bit for me is that like he doesn't he's just kind of picking what he thinks is good and else yeah
0: so you feel that so his thought you're saying that um uh because he doesn't believe in absolute truth or a personal god or something like this mm-hmm. then how can he situate as any one moral above another
4: mm-hmm.
0: or to choose suffering as the thing to go against it is tricky because if you have your ultimate dualism between order and chaos, is why, why not let chaos, especially if you are so uh, disappointed, even fearful of what humans can do in their cruelty, why not let chaos overtake it and let it disappear, let it exterminate itself? Uh, that could be a logical explanation. And he says in his book, um that it is that it is well i mean he says that no one has really looked at their memory or um or their darkest fantasies if they have not desired this elsewhere he said it is uh there is a logical conclusion to want to give up but see but in an act of faith he wants to believe that there's something good so he does know that he's wrestling. Uh, Even uh, uh, at the end of his book, his coda, he says, uh, what shall I do with my pen of light? Um, And someone was, they were walking and someone wanted to jot down a note of what he was saying. And he pushed it and there was a light on it. And he was writing down notes in the dark. And he said, can I have your pen? Uh, And it was for him a metaphorical moment. What shall I do with speech? Speech for him is something transcendent. Uh, it is something from the unknown. Uh, it is something that can name things. And so with that pin of light, he just started writing down a whole bunch of rules and about what he wanted to do with his life. It was random, but he felt it resonated with him. And that is the closest we can say. It resonates with him. There's no reason why he chose one
6: or the other. So, If I could just add one thing. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure he would say in fact i'm pretty sure i've heard him say this that he would ascri- subscribe to absolute truth but he would just say that we don't we can't fully understand like what you said what that looks like or or manipulate that or own that it's just it's there wherever that is however he says we know untruth we don't know what it would be like to speak from the the depths of truth with our whole being but we know for example when we lie so he would say you know okay I can't be there fully I'm not going to try but I'm not going to be here I'm going to try and I'm going to try and incrementally go as close to this I'm pointing truth is up here so yeah I, I don't think he would say purely that it's nebulous like a postmodern kind of kind of Vortex where, where we don't Have truth we just, we That's can't. true
0: He would say that there is um, <clears throat> Well I mean he calls it Fundamental realities Primal constituents uh, He says that We cannot ascribe value To ourselves That's where he disagrees with Nietzsche And he says for such a bright Maybe a, uh, a genius How he could have missed this He says but we cannot ascribe value to ourselves Which he gets from Young. Uh, uh, um, Peterson does because we are he said we need to find out what our true nature is we need to find out what the structure of reality is so he believes that there's a structure in a reality but it's hard to know exactly how to get at it so he tries to get it at it through myths but um and so he feels that he's still on a journey to figure out what that is
2: you know, I've been reading about Jordan Peterson and listening to a lot of his interviews. And I haven't read any of his books yet, but I definitely intend to at some point. Um, and and this this was but this has been great. But it really what sticks in my head through all of this is while it's really important to understand what he's saying, I think it's also important that we not that. I not um, put too much meat on it. Mm. I see them as a, some very strong bones and um, I mean time will tell but I think there will be others that will take pick up what he's sort of laid out mm. and begun to flesh it out in ways that are perhaps more accessible or applicable. I don't know. But I, yeah. I, I worry about, uh, especially in this world of instant gratification and social media, where everything is here now, uh-huh. every word, uh, I think there's a danger of those words becoming too important uh-huh. without due process and thinking. Sorry, which Which words?
4: like
9: his his words yes. Well, mm. I, I, I've just finished reading the book this morning and, <laughs> and um, was really excited to come to the talk and my own, I mean it's all fresh and you've had a chance to sort of mull over and think through and sift and so on and so forth but I came out of it just terrifically excited mm-hmm. as a Christian mm-hmm. um, and I see a lot of what at least what I read, what I saw in the book, was a kind of a pre-evangelism. And you can see on some of the YouTube videos and the responses to those, how many people, in their response to Peterson and the, and the business of, you can't just coast with chaos, but you, ha- you are the person that has to decide what you're going to do with your life. It's really the crisis of decision that Billy Graham talked about. And how many people have made a decision to become Christians. Because of what he's, because of some of his work, and um, I, I find myself reflecting a lot. I mean, for me, the, you know, I remember when I was twelve or fourteen, wondering why would anybody believe in Jesus when the church is such a mess. Mm-hmm. I remember that as a teenager. Mm-hmm. I had big questions and nobody engaged them in the church, and I feel like Peterson is speaking to that question. Mm-hmm. The truth is there. He. He makes reference to the Logos, the Word made flesh, repeatedly throughout the book. And and he sh- he shies away. At least, I mean, from what little bit I've only stumbled across Peterson the last month. So, I <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he seems to me to shy away from any kind of naming, as though he as though P- he Peterson had the way and the truth and the life himself to offer to others. But what I see in him is a humility. Uh, similar to the humility that happens when you're involved in an awful tragedy, or when you see somebody die, mm. and you wonder, what is really going on here? What's mm. this? What's this life all about? Mm. And for me, as a person, when I when I read through that, and and hear mostly the reports about how many thousands of young men are excited about it, they're not being prompted by Peterson into an alt-right kind of violent destructive mode but into a take responsibility for myself and for other people and the, what can I do today to make a difference and for me that that's very much like uh, what Jesus taught us to pray when when he said pray thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven that literally means lord would you be in charge here and I, I, I do respect what you're saying, that he doesn't, <coughs> he doesn't claim to be a Christian. And he shies away from that on the interviews and so on. I haven't been able to see enough of the YouTube videos. But I'm quite impressed by the call towards humility. The acknowledgement that suffering is an enormous component of life. You know? And yes, we live in comfort, but up until a couple hundred years ago, the grand majority of people... You know, as Shakespeare said, "nasty, brutish, and short" is the character of life. And so, for for me, there's a whole lot about it that I find exciting—not uh, just whole as to buy into it, but rather to say, "Well, this is exciting in the world that we live in today." When, from my perspective in the Christian Church, I I say, "My goodness, why would, why would people follow Jesus when Christians don't?" Mm. Why would, why, would, why would we expect anybody to take Jesus seriously when we don't? And, and where I see Peterson is humbly calling our attention to some of those deep questions that, that persist, that are part of us, that are, that are present in the world. You know. So I, I, this has been tremendous uh, stimulus. So thank you very much.
0: Yeah, no, it's good. And I, and I, I agree with what you say. I mean, uh, when I first started hearing Peterson, I, I was alarmed and curious at the same time. Uh, and I thought, wow, what guts, (laughs) you know? Um, but I also wanted to know a little bit more behind him Mm
4: -hmm. and
0: reading the book as maybe you have is, I mean, as you did is, um, uh, is that sometimes I'm like this is so good mm-hmm. and then sometimes I, I was thinking oh wow yeah. he just flies yeah. off into outer space
4: yeah
0: uh, it can be shallow and then very deep uh, I found it something that I wanted to read through mm-hmm. it wasn't something that was scholarship or homework I was actually trying to understand the man but also to understand his ideas because I felt that you know and you said it uh, and I should have said it but is that i believe that him introducing a way into the conversation Mm -hmm. has created a huge amount of dialogue and understanding even in the university i've met a couple of men who said that they were very left-leaning but they had just turned off Mm. and now they they're they're choosing that they want to be men not in an oppressive way because that's what they've been taught if you want to be a man you're going to be oppressive Uh, so don't be a man which Which, uh, uh, that's what Peter said. And I couldn't get to everything he said. I mean, he says so much. No, it's too much. But uh, I didn't even really talk about his rules. (laughs) Uh, This book was on his book, and I didn't even get to any of his rules. But but he says that the more the nanny state diminishes the importance of masculinity, the more men will turn to either masculinization Uh or jihadism like radicalism because men don't know where they can be men uh and uh so he does talk about that and so i've seen a lot of men uh, or not just a couple of men who said that wow you know i really feel that i can take responsibility now and i need to make choices Mm -hmm. now rather than just being dependent i need to make choices and so in that sense i i'm all for it also um yeah i see it as pre-evangelism and Christians look at him and say, wow, this is kind of things that we've been saying, but through Christianese Mm -hmm,
4: mm
0: -hmm. Uh, or or trying to use the Bible in a way or communicating articulately, but not in the public square. He stands out on the U of T campus and speaks. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to do that. He has other jobs to do, you know, Mm -hmm. it's quite interesting. I mean, he he's not saying, oh, if I do this, then I can sell some books. No, he said that when he was writing this book, he said, If I don't get out and do it myself, then why can't I say that I wrote this book? I have to take responsibility too. And so that's why he started stepping up, Uh, whether you agree with him or not. But the idea is that he introduced something that was not being allowed to be said. Uh, And also he's saying things that he's actually bringing so many people who aren't Christians to the Bible and saying, Mm -hmm. wow, there's so many stories here that are powerful. And maybe they're picking up a Bible to say, oh, I want to understand it. Mm-hmm. And if they read the other stuff, yeah, it could very much act like pre-evangelism. Uh, and how do we contend with suffering? So I agree with you. Um, I'm not trouncing Peterson. No, not at all. But I am trying to be qualified. Yeah. Um, because some people have Peterson almost, you know, on the cross. You know? yeah, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I want to be, of be careful, careful of that. Yeah,
2: that's
6: exactly what I was trying to say.
2: Yeah,
0: I want to be careful of that.
6: I, w- I was just thinking about what you're in the beginning, you were saying, how do we understand where he's coming from, um, you know, as accurately as possible or whatever. And One crucial puzzle piece, I think, that I think is missing from just like the, not, not this conversation, I mean, but just in general, um, I've been thinking a lot lately is Marshall McLuhan. I think that's like, mm-hmm. if you really want to know Peterson, read Marshall McLuhan, because that's the relevance and the poignancy of everything that he's saying, and how it corresponds with the nature of uh, meaning today. Like, can you explain? Yeah, <laughs> that was the, um, Well, the, well, Marshall McLuhan. Most people are well. If you're not familiar, he's the his famous term is the medium is the message, right? He was a big media uh, intellectual from Canada. From Canada, yeah, um, from Edmonton oh. too. So, uh, um. And so long story short, the con- the medium that we actually utilize, uh, it, it, it shapes the message, it shapes the information that we consume. So we've seen that play out a few times with radio, with television, and on and on. So um, we need to be aware of the qualitative outcome of the media that we are consuming and, and just in how that is occurring. It's going to dictate the message. So long story short, where that would occur today, there's millions of ways we hey, can talk about with. Yeah, with with Peterson, but like for example, with podcasts, there's this idea that we are we're really stupid and we're instantaneous culture and on and on and on. But one of the uplifting things about Peterson and all this stuff is that like people will listen to a two and a half hour podcast or 15 years worth of three hour long lectures about truth and semiotics and deep level university stuff, and it kind of it it undermines that idea that we are interested in just shallow, crappy, like football-in-the-groin videos, right? <laughs> so Peterson's a catalyst for some, some really, really interesting, game-changing stuff when it comes to uh, meaning and content and who we are as, a, as our current identity in the in 21st century postmodern culture. So I guess that's where I could, I could leave that.
0: Yeah, because we do become very selective about the ideas we hear you know uh you can you don't even have to unfriend people anymore you can just say i don't want to see what you have to think about because you're dumb or or you're naive or whatever word or you want you don't might. think you, like me you don't think like me and so you end up work you start living in an echo chamber uh and so uh that medium is you know it's also uh, that message is true because we self select we now have very difficult time of even hearing things that we don't want to hear, mm-hmm. and in fact, within the classrooms, this is Peterson's problem, uh, is that even in the classroom, we're not allowed to have differences. Lindsay Shepard was, she said that if I'm <coughs> right, she said that she was left, and then she showed this as just all, showing Peterson's views. And when she got called onto the carpet, she changed her mind and said, "Wow, I didn't know that I was, you know, uh, you know, poking the giant." I didn't even realize. She thought I actually there was a free exchange of ideas. Mm-hmm.
6: Uh, so, so yeah, it's really good to... Can I add one that. thing to that, mm-hmm. if, if I may? Sorry, it just occurred to me now. But in regards to the political thing, so this is really interesting. So in the past, we've thought of politics, for example, with all this right, left and stuff. It's kind of been crystallized in these, these binaries, like this is where the left is, this is where the right is, and that's been a principal part of the discourse for a long time. But now we're seeing... Peterson's kind of looking at it, and we're, we're seeing it break down anyway. He's showing us that it's part of kind of an anthropological outgrowth of who we are. I mean, the left, um, we need to nurture. We need to be socially minded. We need to be thoughtful of one another. That's, I mean, think about it in caveman times. We are a community. We are tribal in nature. That's a fact. But at the same time, if you go and then with caveman brain... Um, we want to be rewarded for individual efforts. I mean, the 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 strongest ape is going to have the the largest harem. Let's say, you know, maybe that's not the best example, but. Um, <laughs> go to veto, veto. Okay, okay, okay. Anyway, uh, so what I'm saying is, if you fast forward that today, we're seeing, I think, a more interesting, or not more interesting, a more useful dynamic within those binaries playing out where peterson oddly enough is actually advocating for we need left and right it's not a binary it's a continuum and we need to have this synthesis and that's not something that's too common right and if we don't have that that's when we're going to have chaos and problems and ideology and and ideology yeah we've already
2: started sliding towards that where we have this as you say crystallization of the left and the right in binary terms and it seems to me that Peterson has somehow, and and I've had a friend of mine who's quite the thinker, he says to me one day there's no middle left. There is nothing there. It's gone. Uh, but somehow Peterson has come up with something to stand on and he's being reviled from both left and right simply because he's had the audacity to find middle and stand there. And I And I... For no other reason, I think that's <clears throat> worth uh, looking into.
7: Um, so I kind of want to go back to what you said about how this is affecting like, young men and pre-evangelism and all that, because I'm a Southern Baptist Christian college student in the States, so like this is very prevalent where I am, and a lot of my friends are very much on the um, train with everything that he says. But there is a lot of caution that needs to be worried in like how you see that as mm-hmm. being pre-evangelism, because... For the people who have already converted it's been really toxic on our campus because instead of them like being more passionate for the gospel and getting oh, compassion instead they're becoming really fascinated with philosophy mm-hmm. so a lot of them are actually like <laughs> almost deconverting because they're just starting to view God as more symbolic so like I've seen a lot of mysticism arise mm-hmm. in a very negative way because they're starting to see everything as archetypical instead of actually mm-hmm. present within his- history and then with that a lot of people are starting to view his sermons as or his lectures as sermons because yes. of how enticing he is as a speaker and his passion behind what he says and his willingness to address the culture directly um, rather than beat around the bush in how he discusses mm-hmm. topics. So as much as it can be helpful, it's actually really poisonous right now to some people within the Christian context mm-hmm. who are the younger generation because they're eating up things, or they're eating up everything he says because he's actually saying something, but not everything he says is rooted in truth.
9: Mm-hmm. Uh, if if yeah. you were to describe a, a preacher on Sunday morning in all those terms, Mm-hmm. would you go to that church that's <laughs>
7: people would go to that church and that's the issue so
9: for me that's part of the answer is like cuz one of the things that he said that just really hit mm-hmm. me was that because he's I, you know he, it wasn't his intention i don't think to fall into all this stuff about transgender pronouns mm-hmm. and so on. that's just a fascinating kind of byproduct but one of the things that he said is that free speech is necessary as, a, as an antidote to chaos mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. when he talks about the logos the word becoming flesh he's saying you need to speak up
7: mm-hmm. in your
9: situation or else chaos will ensue
7: but free speech not rooted in truth can produce more chaos
9: well perhaps but what he is saying is if you legislate or self-censor mm-hmm. which is really where the Christian church is today mm-hmm. I believe I mean mm-hmm. You know all those young men why are they so excited well because you can't say what you're really struggling with mm-hmm. i mean you really can't you ca- i mean i know
0: <laughs> or really wanting to say yeah.
9: well i mean yeah so for me there's something in what he's saying that you know that he, he said sorry my mind is i get too wrapped up in too many different ideas but but what he's what at one stage what he said is that free speech is the opportunity to speak freely what you believe and he said necessarily it will cause offense mm-hmm. i mean jesus said the same thing <laughs> it'll cause offense blessed are those who don't who listen but don't take offense so one of the conversations in our family for years is you can people can offend you but you don't need to take offense and to me in the circumstance with all those with the, the stuff on the campus it would be to speak that word is to say you know what is it possible that the word becoming flesh is, as Jesus again said John about John the Baptist, it comes violently. <laughs> or again, you look at the verses, how many people listened to Jesus until he said things that were a little too difficult and then they left? Mm. Huge numbers. So I, so I say there's something about this that, that uh, for young men who, who perhaps have self-censored and haven't been able to speak about their struggles, their perceptions, whatever, whatever, Peterson is saying, you need to speak out and speak up and to risk making a mistake. Martin Luther's favorite phrase was sin boldly.
4: Mm-hmm.
9: Don't just self-censor, speak up. And, but in a community like here where you have the trust that people will try to hear what you're, what you're <coughs> trying to say and not just be offended by words that perhaps are mistaken. There's something about that process that to me is just like you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh, and the Word has come and dwelt among us, and it has to dwell among each of us. So so I I get excited about it, and yes, at the same time, I'd be really uh, hesitant about where it could go as well on campus. Great.
0: Great. Yeah. Jessica? I,
1: I wanted to build on what you were saying, because I wanted to go back to that too,
0: and because I was thinking... Back to the, to, the um, decoding? Back to
1: the, the idea of the proto evangelism and the appeal towards to christians and oh, wow. being a catalyst for conversion um, cuz i'm i'm really curious about that because on the one hand i think i heard some really bad theology in and i'm my exposure is tonight so <laughs> 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 but just as i like, like the word coding was in there and i know there's genetic code but i also think computer code and it makes me think his, part of his theology is the big programmer in the sky or some kind of, and there's something extremely dehumanizing that would then run through his entire undercuts. And I, I also, um, need to ask if he, uh, if he's talking about myth and kind of pulling out meaning, does he address the resurrection? Or does he use no, the resurrection I don't think as as
0: I have not seen him talk about the resurrection. But I did hear from someone who really likes him and has watched a lot of his videos. Someone said, "Do you believe that Jesus rose again?" He said, "What do you mean by Jesus?" So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and elsewhere he talks about, and then when he talks about Genesis one through three, he said that uh, when when people are trying to ask scientific questions or is it true scientifically? He goes, and Christians fight on it. He goes, because they're missing each other because they're talking about two different truths. Yeah. Um, he, he even goes with personal truth at times. Uh, he says, live in the truth, but then sometimes he goes, live your personal truth.
4: Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. Um, so he said it's more about, it's psychological meaning, though it may mean more, yeah. he says sometimes. Yeah. But he doesn't, as far as my re- I recollect, he doesn't say anything about the resurrection because I was looking for
9: it.
6: He does. Uh, he does have an hour and a half long. Um, it's like a newer one, or like not brand new, but I think a month old or something yeah. on Jesus Christ, where he fully talks about the re- the resurrection and the logos. Though he calls it like uh, n- the nature of. But it's
0: Christ. more of like a eternal rebirth, a rebirth out of darkness. It, no, it he talks
1: about lot. It's you know, it's it's complex, like this intersection, this middle ground. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, um, I've been thinking about evangelism in our so- society and thinking, it's not about is Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior. It's, did you know that the, I? It's witnessing that God exists, and God is good, uh-huh. and God wants the best for us. Uh-huh and you can know you have to start there. Mm-hmm. And that's a real that's like found that's where you that's where you That's like the that's best side of proto
0: evangelism <laughs> rather than you may you saying maybe this other type of thing. No,
1: no, I'm just saying like I like I on the, I'm I'm kind of ambivalent or I'm interested in the different sides of this idea of Jordan Peterson and proto evangelism <laughs> because on the one hand I totally I see there's truth and that our society is so far from some of the basic assumptions or foundations that as Christians we are strong mm-hmm. strong in, um, But, and so we can't take even the most basic stuff for granted when mm-hmm. we evangelize.
4: Mm-hmm. But
1: on the other hand what happens when the freedom of speech or this new passion is mm-hmm. based on something that is deeply flawed mm-hmm. that has, that does have bad theology that you know like that it's not affirming the resurrection i mean mm-hmm. it's not jesus's death and i'm not talking about something heinous and mm-hmm. abhorrent happening i'm just saying how is that different from any other religion that recognizes that suffering is bad and mm-hmm. We need to take personal responsibility mm. i think that's a positive that's a pretty poor triumph for christians yes right so like i guess that's what i would add to the caution is that mm. there's some christianness <laughs> you know but there's but Yeah, and, and, that, that's, and that's all like the holy spirit works in ways that i hope i don't can't believe all and know all the ways the holy spirit can work these are all thresholds that's right but um but it's that i sometimes i think christians forget what they really believe and we're happy to that someone can identify the difference between good and bad Mm. Yeah, you know for the caution
0: i was thinking especially when you brought it up irene is that uh is that A person who is not a Christian being first introduced to these biblical stories, I think, maybe they're getting a taste of something and they want more. But for those who are in the church, and you said that the church has often failed, they're not speaking, they're not being engaged in culture, they're not speaking language that people understand. a lot of people have very superficial understanding of biblical stories. Mm-hmm. They have a very superficial understanding of the biblical narrative um, of, uh, or biblical life, uh, a, a holy Christian life, obedient life. It's very shallow, very superficial, and a lot of it is undergirded by lots of bad theology. So when they read someone, and also you have the therapeutics, so strongly enriched in the church where it says, well, I need to deal with my suffering And I go, and Christ makes me happy because it pulls me out of this darkness I feel. And if that's all it is, not counting the cost of the disciple or uh, anything like that, uh, I can go many more examples, the prophetic, uh, is that I think, yeah, it could be toxic. It could be, uh, like you're saying, Irene, that people could say, have a fragile faith, and be weakened in saying, oh, the first time someone starts seeing that there's similarities between Horus, the Egyptian god, and Marduk, and Jesus, uh, they're like, well, I mean, all the ancients had gods die and rise again, therefore, how can it be true outside of a the symbol? Uh, there is an eternal darkness, or there is a chaos, uh, and so they start seeing that this psychological interpretation as the authoritative word mm-hmm. that's where i want to be a bit more cautious yes. mm-hmm.
1: but for many people their faith has weakened before they've gotten there mm-hmm. like the church isn't doing what
0: it's it has weakened but i'm just saying seeing peterson as a way to in strength mm-hmm. to and strengthen their own
7: like a confirmation mm-hmm. of,
0: like, yeah a I confirmation think. or okay. and just think
9: more deeply mm-hmm. I have an illustration i think a lot of people will catch is that a lot of people, whether you've ever been an alcoholic or not, will know people who go to AA meetings. Mm-hmm. And you'll know that there's millions of people who have been saved from hell on Earth in their mm-hmm. own lives by th- through the 12-step mm-hmm. program of mm-hmm. AA. Um, the people that put together the AA program came out of a Christian perspective. They put it together. It is a kind of a proto evangelism, mm-hmm. yeah, I would say, yeah. from a Christian perspective. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I had a friend who uh, was in AA, and um, his—I mean—he described his life in heavy detail to me over a long time, and it was—it was awful. It was horrible. But AA gave him everything. I mean, his sobriety and his life, and so on. He's a constructive member of society. He got married. he got children, and so on, and so forth. Mm-hmm. On one occasion, he <laughs> said to me. He said to me, You know, Erica, I, I, sa- I said, Why are you in such a bad mood? What's going on? He said, oh, I don't want to talk about it. Because he knows I'm a Christian, go to church. And I said, Come on, Tony, tell me what's going on. He said, Well, God's been so good to me in AA. You have no idea. What's, uh, yeah, you have some idea of what's happened to me through my life. So I kept, you know, there's all these references to Jesus, so I figured I should go to a church. He said, So I've been. He said, It's not even as good as an A. meeting. <laughs> And you ask yourself, why? First one is people are real. Mm. Every AA meeting, two or three or four Mm. people get up and tell the god-awful truth of who they used to be, how they changed, and what's going on. Mm. Everybody's accepted. As soon as you request help, you're given a sponsor that you can phone 24 hours a day, Mm -hmm. and they're there. Mm -hmm. There's so much in the the program that I was just like, oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't the church discover this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the church was that, yeah. you know. So I, I think of Peterson. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm talking way more than I ever intended to tonight. But to me, what Peterson is doing is a little bit like A. If you can make the, I mean, don't don't make it into a, a too strong an illustration, but just there's some similarities there, and I, I think I think God is one and. Mm-hmm. We already know who's won the battle, mm-hmm. so the question mm-hmm. is, how's it going to play out, mm-hmm. and what does Jesus call us to in this circumstance in the world in which we are today? And for me, the excitement about Peterson is that he uses the illustration, and yes, perhaps more as an illustration than as reality, but nonetheless, in the same way that the that the logos, is the word from God, is what drew uh, this life mm-hmm. out of. You know the order from chaos and this, the subtitle of the book is Antidote to Chaos mm-hmm.
0: but uh, see I, I think that
4: uh,
0: <laughs> <you're>,
9: <laughs> you
0: you have a depth of understanding of the Bible and of Christ and of personal experience of the spirit that enables you to read Peterson and to mine its deeper depths mm-hmm. but I don't think that all people who read Peterson will mine the same depths. They will they can take it in different directions. I'm not saying well, just
9: yeah, I'm not it's saying just cool. because
0: it can be dangerous, therefore it should be banned or something. I'm yeah. not saying that at all. So I totally agree with you. But I don't think that all that you're saying is what Peterson has offered. It's no. what you are able to find <laughs> as a deep for sure. for Christian. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's and that's what I
2: mean by by putting your own meat on it. I mean they're good bones. So everybody is gonna interpret it
7: differently. Uh, sorry, Irene? Um, just so people have like a real-life example of how this actually works when young college students are exp- like, exposed to this, my twin sister is a Peterson fanatic and has met Jordan Peterson, but for she looked to Jordan Peterson to understand um, his beliefs as an apologetical system and like was going to him to better understand how she could relate to the secular world with Christianity, and then she went around and turned his view of the unconscious and the conscious... Um, and how that works with evolution and all that fun stuff into her theological view of Genesis. Mm -hmm. Because she's like, well, this makes more logical sense than any other um, interpretation I've ever seen of creation. So therefore, if you don't believe this, you're a heretic because this makes logical sense and it can be applied to people in the secular and spiritual world. Mm -hmm. So this doesn't, it's not just a system that people ponder upon. People actually look to it for an apologetical sense, mm-hmm. and that can be used. Like, my big fear with all the things that um, Peterson does is that it can very easily turn into heresy when people start applying it as a theology instead of a philosophy.
0: Yeah, and people have tried to look at Genesis and try to understand its relationship to evolutionary theory. <laughs> but, you know, with Peterson, I thought, well, one logical flaw is if they're not yet conscious, I mean, if consciousness is a result of sin, mm-hmm. that's a huge statement. To say that does the Bible say that being conscious is our con? Are we condemned by consciousness, <laughs> yeah. or by our, um, or by the sin that occurs within consciousness, the darkened mind, as the New Testament speaks? Uh, but even more than that, or not more than that, also with that is that if Adam was yet to be conscious, mm-hmm. who, why was God talking to him? It's not good for man to be alone, is he just talking to him? And then when Adam sees Eve, he goes, you know, uh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you know, this poetic. And, uh, and then the Bible itself draws a, uh, um, a, uh, an archetype, as it were, that this is why a man will, you know, mm-hmm. a, a woman will leave. A, um, <clears throat> but there so it's like they're conscious. They're speaking. Yet Peterson withholds that, because he because it fits with his evolutionary theory.
2: Exactly.
0: So,
1: anyway. Um, if people want to leave, they're welcome to leave. It's a nine fifteen. But I'd also be curious more about the twelve rules of what, like we haven't we haven't not talked about that. But it sounds like a good thing for people to take more personal responsibility for.
0: Um, yeah yeah. <clears throat> yeah yeah well I mean his 12 12 rules I mean it's just like be precise in your speech so it's like the world is chaotic therefore you we need to be precise of what we're talking about uh it says um uh, let's see tra- tell the truth or at least don't lie um, it's saying that reality transforms Transforms our ideas and our character If we don't lie Deceive or manipulate like totalitarians We must be brave enough to say what we truly think uh, And so on I mean I could And I talked about about the skateboarding and the pet a cat But I think it's more important that um, If you understand his framework And then you read the book Then it will all become clear I think it's a nice
2: prism in which to understand his thought.
0: Because there's a lot more that he says than what I just said. It's just the bare
2: bones. You know, I think, I haven't gone through these, like I haven't read the book, but I I read the Bible fairly often. uh, And there's a lot of uh, places in the Bible, I couldn't give you chapter and verse, where you could find these, I- including pet the cat i mean <laughs> well uh, i
1: think there's also a lot where you would find something opposite to these like treat um make friends with people who want the best for you <laughs> there's not a lot of room for gospel work and that's uh, right you know
2: hmm. that's right one question i i have sorry
1: and christ never spoke I'm up sorry. before pilot <laughs> There was times
0: when he spoke and he said, keep it a secret. And then sometimes
2: he did, he did proclaim. That's true. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. I'm I'm Um, getting
2: excited. And I'm, I'm interested in, I mean, I don't know if I'm adding a layer here or not, but um, the whole thing, I mean, this whole thing was, I mean, he came to the forefront of news media and everybody's conscience conscience conscious
0: consciousness
2: Consciousness. consciousness. <laughs> um, with the whole thing about the transgender you know and we've we've talked about the uh, male the, the feminine and masculine the feminine being chaos the masculine being uh, order um, the Tao and all of that and I'm just curious how that fits into what's happening in society now. I mean, there seems to be such conflict, such chaos
4: mm-hmm.
2: between uh, the, the feminine and the masculine, men and women to be precise. Mm-hmm. There seems to be such terrible uh, tension and chaos now.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, the, the recrimination and the re-recrimination and the Uh, I'm just curious how all that fit, how this all fits in with that.
4: That's a
0: very good question. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to answer it. Go ahead.
1: Uh, Well, I just had a thought about the parallel, because I'm struggling, because I feel um, I'm finding it easy to kind of find holes in Peterson, but I also hear, and I'm really interested in heartened to hear that young men are feeling energized and given permission to speak their minds and be themselves. And I, I I'm loath to press against that. I, I want to encourage that. But there's, so there, but, what uh, but, but, you know, also as a feminist and a liberally educated woman, I, I have a sense of kind of, um, well, I guess what I'm trying to point out is this parallel between the transgender, transge- trans activists who are asking for recognition of the tremendous suffering and oppression that they, have, they are experiencing, mm. and there's this huge blowback. Yeah. And, and I hear also that young men and men in North America are starting to say we feel weakened and oppressed and we're getting all this blowback for just being who we are and so there's in a way like both parties are in the same similar position in relation to peterson they
0: are uh it just showed did you want to say something
1: yeah i just wanted to build on that and say that i don't think that they are in the same position mm-hmm. because historically trans people have been oppressed yeah whereas that that is one thing that i wanted to bring up that um, the people who are excited by Peterson are the people who have historically had the most freedom to speech. And the people who feel threatened by Peterson are the people who have been silenced and abused for the longest. Mm-hmm. And that makes me suspicious, mm-hmm. viewing it through the lens of power, which is limited. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just that first blush, it's like, mm-hmm. there's been so much talk about the men who feel empowered by this, and it just makes me so sad to think about Mm -hmm. my queer friends who have to leave the church because of this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really sad. No, I really appreciate that, because I feel torn. I feel torn about that, because I I completely agree with you, but I also hear... A need for like I yeah. also hear what them, some of the men are saying. Like right, I recognize yeah. that there's a, there's been a loss of status and there's some retrenching in chauvinist chauvinist values. And I also hear that um, there's young men mm-hmm. are s- struggling to know what to do with their yeah. lives and how to create their lives. And and so I guess part of the context that we're d- talking in is that a lot of us don't feel free to be ambivalent or undecided or kind of hearing both sides. You have to kind of be in one group or the other. Because, yeah, like I I, I agree with you.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, for Peterson, he would say that um, He thinks that the ideology behind um, what he calls trans activism, um, the ideology he's saying is that it believes that ultimate reality is all about power. And he thinks that power is not the only thing at play. And he said that what he fears, and this is why he fears totalitarianism in the seeds of trans activism, even though he says he's not against trans people. He's against the trans activism Mm -hmm. That is, um, and he says that there's trans people that support him. Uh, and they, um, because it's created quite the mess, and he thinks that, uh, if I, I want to be careful in this, but I do believe he thinks that people are using basically trans activism as a platform in which to keep pushing a Marxist ideology any way they can. Um, just as it was, anyway. <clears throat> but he's saying that the ideology, the Marxist ideology is that the true reality is power. Power is the true force in the world. But he goes, when you believe that only power is at work, that those who have power and those who don't, he says it, comes, it becomes a camouflage for you to say, I have no power in order that you use power against. And he says that that reduces reality to just, um, just power plays mm-hmm. where he doesn't think it's just about power plays. Um, he thinks that the structure is hierarchical, but he doesn't think that it's just about those who have, and those who have not. Um, so anyway, just saying that, uh, I do want to, let me, let me quote him about this. Okay. Uh, but before I do, I do want to agree that, I mean, uh, yeah, the church should be a place for people to be able to come, whether they're trans or whether they're uh, a very masculine man. <laughs> you know what I mean? It should be a place for all, um, because in Christ, um, all become one. But let me quote him just so that you can understand from his mouth um, or from his pen of light, um, how he understands this. as activism as an ideology the insane and incomprehensible postmodern insistence that all gender differences are socially constructed for example becomes all too understandable when its moral imperative is grasped when its justification for force is once and for all understood and this is what this is what we need to understand society must be altered or bias eliminated until all outcomes are equitable But the bedrock of the social constructionist position is the wish for the latter, not belief in the justice of the former. Uh, Since all outcome inequalities must be eliminated, inequality being the heart of all evil, which he doesn't believe, then all gender differences must be regarded as socially constructed. Otherwise, the drive for equality would be too radical and the doctrine too blatantly propagandistic. Thus, the order of logic is reversed so that the ideology can be camouflaged. The fact that such statements lead immediately to internal inconsistencies within that ideology is never addressed. Gender is constructed, but an individual who desires gender reassignment surgery is to be unarguably considered a man trapped in a woman's body, or vice versa. The fact that both of these cannot logically be true simultaneously is just ignored or rationalized away with another appalling postmodern claim, that logic itself, along with the techniques of science, is merely part of the oppressive patriarchal system. So, that's a lot there. That's the kind you've got to taste. <laughs> I'm just going to bore you through controversy.
1: Well, I mean, the thing is, is that it sounds like he's claiming to be outside of postmodernism. Yes. Yeah. No one living... Right now is outside of postmodernism any more than we're outside of the twenty first century. I think it, that's, that, true. that's that's my belief at least. I I think post postmodernism is a, is a description, just of the factors at play and.
0: We might the say postmodernity of yeah, which yeah, we're all right. a part. Postmodernism,
1: right. maybe as a an way of a, a position of, of that. yeah. Yeah, but I don't. I I hear him, kind of. I hear him being celebrated as a critic, but uh, Judith Butler talks about to properly criticize something, you have to know its boundaries. And he's not kind of at the boundaries or knowing the edges and the beyond of of our current society. He's he's working within.
0: He is, he is working within.
1: Um, Which is fine, unless he's saying I'm outside. I'm free, I'm right. free
0: of it, you
9: know. One of the experiences that I had when I was reading the book was to, to and reminded that he is the only faculty member of the psychology faculty member who has a clinical practice where he sees patients every single week. So there's constant references to that. And there's numerous times when I felt as though I was sitting, listening to a counselor or a psycho- psychologist in, you know, going back and forth leading me by questions or comments, like the chapters are written. The book is immensely challenging. The, f- the chapter headings are a caricature, mm-hmm. si- really. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they relate to the whole chapter, mm-hmm. but they're, qu- they're quite dense. The mm-hmm. chapters are quite, there's a lot there. But I, I find myself thinking in images or in, you know, in symbols almost to try to make sense of what it is that he's trying to do. And I think he's trying to make sense of his fascination with evil came about because he, he traveled into Europe and was looking mm-hmm. at, you know, the Nazi Germany and the results. And that's what took him back into psychology. How yes. could people become so evil? Yes, And that's what got him in, interested in Marxism. But but I see the book as, you know, he's read so widely and, and so on. But he, I see him as a person who spent all this time listening to people and counseling people mm-hmm. and trying to help people find order and balance and harmony in their life. And so what he's, what he's done in this book is he's siphoned down a whole, I mean, you know, rings of stuff into these 12. And the the titles are curious, and they sort of point a little bit, that there's a lot in each chapter. And so for me, there's something in that, that if I, I find out I, I want over and over to take something seriously and hold it lightly, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I don't think Peterson would say this is the new gospel, personally, mm-hmm. but, but rather, he uses the historical patterns that have been laid down for thousands of years, and says this is still at play for us. You know, and Peterson didn't make up the thing that order is masculine and chaos is feminine. That's millennia old. That that comes. Yeah, that's the that's the old story. So he's picking up all this kind of stuff, and then and then bringing in modern uh, history and anthropology and all this other kind of stuff, and so. It leaves for me. It left me feeling breathless, or, or as people say, it's like trying to take a sip of water out of a fire hose. You know, it just goes all over the place. There's way too much there, but it's certainly provocative. It is it's certainly provocative.
0: And with his with that statement about postmodernism, saying that gender is merely social constructed, I mean, the question that it, it leaves me with, and I think it's a question that he would like to be asked, is well, if If gender is merely culturally constructed, what do we do about masculinity and femininity? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We may not be able to nail it down, but what do we do with it when it's so apparent? Uh, What do we do with what it means to be feminine or masculine? Yeah, like what do we do? Is that is that something that does not exist? Mm Um, or is it something that does exist That is hard to describe And so you can understand that He's saying that this masculine and feminine Is so so old It's older than humanity It's older than multicellular animals That we need He says before we make a change We need to, we need to make sense Of what we've inherited And he feels if that's what's not being happening mm-hmm. That no one is explaining What is masculine and feminine Rather than just throwing it out Anyway, I just wanted to just offer that. Mm-hmm. Let's end there. We could keep talking, but uh, but uh, we will end there. So, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.